We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Morning, glory, evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, which I'm going to spend entirely with Christopher Hitchens, Vanity Fair columnist, author of the bestseller God is Not Great, and a new extraordinary memoir, Hitch 22. And Christopher Hitchens, welcome back. Uh, It's great to talk with you. Very nice of you to have me. Now, uh, Christopher, since we last spoke, uh, your illness you disclosed on the web, and people will want to know off the bat how you were doing and, and how your treatment's going. Oh, well, I have, in case people are just tuning in, I have a <clears throat> cancer in my esophagus, which has, I think, spread a little to my lymph nodes as well. And I, I'm two weeks into the chemotherapy course. Um, so I feel pretty weak, and my voice isn't what it was. <clears throat> but that's supposed to be a good sign in that the amount of poison I'm taking is presumably working on the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. Uh, and this morning I found my hair was beginning to come out in the shower, which is a bit demoralizing, I have to say, even though it's the least of it. Well, I, I know you've received many well wishes, and I know my audience has been among them, and I'm very glad you could make the time today to talk about this you know, book. Everyone's been extremely generous, including, well, preeminently yourself. Thank you. Well, let's turn to this amazing book, because we had this set up for when you were diagnosed, and I'm glad you're, you're back in the saddle and able to talk about it today. And, and I think you may be my first guest who has actually ever passed out anti-Soviet newspapers in the streets of Havana in, uh, in 1968. And I, I actually, before you were diagnosed, I had written down this, this question. I want to ask it because it's the way I was going to do the interview to begin with. You've shaken hands with Oswald Mosley and General Videla of Argentina and Abu Nudal and a whole bunch of other people. Who's the most evil person you've met, Christopher Hitchens? Well, as Hannah Arendt famously said, there can be a banal aspect to evil. In other words, it doesn't present always. I mean, often what you're meeting is a very mediocre person. But nonetheless, you can get a sort of frisson of wickedness from them. And um, the best combination of those, I think, I describe him in the book, is was General Jorge Rafael Videla of Argentina who I met in the late 1970s, um, when the Death Squad war was at its height, and his fellow citizens were disappearing off the street all the time. And he was, in, in some ways, extremely banal. He lo- I describe him as looking like a human toothbrush. He was a sort of starch, lean officer with a silly moustache, and very sort of stupid look to him, but a very fanatical glint as well. And if I tell you why he's now under house arrest in Argentina, it, um, you might get a sense of the, the horror I felt as I was asking him questions about all this. He's in prison in Argentina for selling the children of the rape victims among the private prisoners who he kept in a personal jail. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who's done anything as sort of condensedly horrible as that. Um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and in fact, on page 194 of Hitch 22, you posed that as a question. It was both arresting to, to 
know the detail, but also, right, do you know why to your reader? Well, do you, you wrote. And I didn't. And I'm curious as to why you use that technique at that point, asking your reader a question. Yes. I just, well, when I write, as often as I can, I try to write as if I'm talking to people. It doesn't always work, and one shouldn't always try, but I, I, I try and write as if I am talking and trying to engage the reader in a conversation. And sometimes I, I get letters from people saying they feel they've been personally addressed, and I always think of that as a success. Well, that's what got so me at that case, point. in this case, I'm taking them, I'm actually doing, what, I'm overdoing it perhaps a little, but I thought it merited it. I'm sort of taking them by the lapel and saying, I'm sure you know, you think you know, that there were a lot of people as they called it, would, were disappeared in Argentina. The word disappear became a, uh, became a positive. Um, well, what, am I, what am I trying to say? Um, you didn't disappear, you were disappeared. It was something that happened to you. It was done to you. I'm sure you know all this. I'm sure you think you know. But actually, do you have any idea of how bad it was? Actually, I didn't. I didn't even know his name, Christopher Hitchens, I'm ashamed to say, until I read your memoir. Well, he's one of Henry Kissinger's best friends. Kissinger was his personal guest at the World Cup in Argentina. He was a highly protected uh, figure in American foreign policy at the time, even under the Carter administration, uh, which is when I think I was meeting him, as a matter of fact. Um, and he was, in the original sense of the word, really, a, a fascist. I mean, he, he believed that the, there was an international Jewish conspiracy to take over Argentina. Um, he admired Mussolini, Franco, um, he probably believed in the protocols of the elders of Zion. My, my great friend, the late Jacobo Timmerman, who was also disappeared for a considerable time, a Jewish newspaper editor in Buenos Aires, said that when he was being tortured in another private prison, his interrogators kept asking him, so don't you understand who our enemies are? Our enemies are Sigmund Freud because he destroyed the Christian concept of the family. Albert Einstein because he destroyed the Christian concept of the cosmos and Karl Marx because he destroyed the Christian idea of the uh, organic economy. And do you think it's coincidence all these three people are Jews? It was a very intense revisiting of the, of the sort of Nazi agenda in, in the southern cone of the United States. Uh, sorry, of the Americas. He also posed a question to you, which I made a note of, that uh, he, he argues with you in your recollection of your interview. Terrorism is not just killing with a bomb, but activating ideas. Separating that statement from the evil man who said it. Cannot that be true, Christopher Hitchens? Yes, I dare say it can. I mean, I was asking, I, I knew he was going to say that there were various reasons why all this was going on. And I had ready with me a, an example I'd been given by a human rights group in Argentina of a woman called Claudia Inez Grunberg, another Jewish woman. She was a quadriplegic. She'd last been seen being lifted into a police car with unmarked plates. And when I when I he talked about terrorism and bombing and I mean there were terrorists in Argentina at that time, I said, well look, these allegations can't be true in the case of this woman because she wasn't able even to move. Um, and he said, and he without batting a lash, he said, well, in that case she must have been guilty of some ideological offence. And I remember noticing a couple of his advisors blenching a bit as if they thought, well, the supreme leader's gone a bit far in saying that he's admitted too much. But then I looked a bit surprised too, and I, I think he mistook that and repeated the answer as if for my benefit, in case I hadn't understood. And clearly what was important to him was getting rid of cosmopolitan Jewish internationalists and 
people of this kind because their mere existence in terms of ideas was a threat to his concept of the Argentine order. What's interesting that to me... But yes, I mean, I'd have to answer you. I'm not dodging your question. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think there is, if you like, a terrorism by incitement. Um, I think it has to be very, very, very carefully isolated. But, um, for example, um, the horrific pimp and runner of prostitutes in America and later recruiter of bachelor virgin suicide killers... Sheikh al-Laki now in Yemen. It's, That's who I was going to ask. It's yeah, on I mean, my I notes. Think, I, I agree with the president. I think he's put himself in the crosshairs. He's, he's undoubtedly attempting, well, well, while not involving his own precious skin, because as I say, he's a pimp and a runner of hookers and well known to be a very worldly guy. But he doesn't mind signing up innocent, frustrated, sexually thwarted uh, kids for murder missions. I think he should be killed. Now, I want to go to the In other... Fact, if I had a wish, if, if what I've got turns out to be terminal, um, I wouldn't mind my last act being an interview with him, followed by a nasty surprise. That would be... That would I feel then I was dying in a good cause. How much time are you spending on that thought, Christopher Hitchens? About... As little as I can, because it's morbid and, and mock heroic. All right. I, I want to... It avoids the boring thought that one is suffering in effect for no reason. I mean, I'm not suffering in a good cause or witnessing for any, you know, any great idea or anything or principle. It's just boring. Uh, the, the number of people I'm sure who are praying for you, including people who come up to me and ask me to tell you that, people like Joseph Timothy Cook, how are you responding to them given your famous atheism? Well, look, I mean, I think the prayer and holy water and things like that, that are all fine. They don't do any good, but they don't necessarily do any harm. It's touching to be thought of in that way. It, it makes up for those who tell me that I've got my just desserts. Um, it's, I'm, I'm afraid to say it's almost as well-founded an idea. I mean, I don't, I, they don't know whether prayer will work, and they don't know whether I've come by this because I'm a sinner. Oh, I, uh, has anyone I, actually said that to you? Yeah, yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Forgive them. Well, well I, I mean, I don't mind. Uh, it doesn't hurt me. But for the same reason, it, I wish it was more consoling. But I, I have to say, it's some extremely nice people. Um, including people known to you, um, have said that I'm in their presence. Um, I can only say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm touched by the thought. And when we come back from break, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum, that being we've talked about the most evil people that Christopher Hitchens has met, as detailed uh, in great precision in Hitch 22. We'll come back and we'll talk to him about the best people. It is a remarkable memoir. It is linked at HughHewitt.com. You're going to find yourself lost in it as I did. Stay tuned. I'm spending as much time as I can with Christopher Hitchens today talking about Hitch 22. And if you stay with us, you'll know why. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Twenty-one minutes after the hour, Americans Hugh Hewitt, joined by Christopher Hitchens, whose magnificent memoir Hitch Twenty-Two in bookstores now, and it references this song "Go Where You Want to Go" by the Mamas and the Papas. In fact, there's a lot of music in Hitch Twenty-Two, Christopher Hitchens, but I didn't expect you to be, you know, taken by the Mamas and Papas when you were a young man. Well, when I was about eighteen, I suppose I was at university. I remember the, the album "California Dreaming" came out. Yes. And of course, I was—you know—it was a bit sugary in some ways, and but I loved the way it sounded. Even so, that particular song happened to 
jive with something I was experiencing at the time and had been for a little while. It was a very strong need to see the United States. I had a, I couldn't quite explain it. I even had little dreams sometimes about what it would be like going to America. And um, when I heard that song, it always gave me this huge yearning to cross the Atlantic. Now, I, before the break, I, I mentioned I was going to ask you about the best people you've met. This is, in many respects, a memoir of friendship. Uh, Martin Amos and Edward Said and, and uh, others throughout your entire life. Were they the best people that you knew? Is that who you, you look back as being the best, or is it some public figure? No, I think they would. I mean, for me, there's there a cynical remark made by an Englishman. Um, I think it was Hesketh Pearson, actually, who's a friend of G.K. Chesterton's who said, friends are God's apology for relations. <laughs> and when I was young, my family was perfectly nice. I write a lot about it, as you've noticed, but it was rather limited. I, I, think I'd, I don't think anyone in my family would, would really feel I'd done them injustice by saying that. We didn't see many people. There weren't many books. It was a, I, I wanted to get away from home. And so when I, was, when I was able to choose my own company, I felt that was a huge stage in my own sort of self-emancipation. <clears throat> and, and so friends are family to me. It is. And a, sorry, there's a, a story in here about page three ninety nine to four hundred of when you and Martin go to see Saul Bellow. And yeah. uh, Saul Bellow, I want to quote here. Saul Bellow didn't know that I, Christopher Hitchin, was a close friend of Edward Said, but Martin did. Thus, even though I knew he wanted me to stay off anything controversial, I couldn't allow Bellow uh, couldn't allow Martin to see me sitting there complicitly while an absent friend was being defamed. For all he knew, if the company were sufficiently illustrious, I might even let the cock crow for him. That would surely never do. I, I, I kind of stopped and I said at this point, friendship may be the most important thing in Hitchens' life. Yes, well, it is, I think. It's a form of solidarity, for one thing, and then it's a form of love. Um, so it deserves respect for that, too, wouldn't you say? Yes, and, and how... And it, and, it, and it also, it does, it does demand something of you. In particular, I thought, well... You know, Martin wanted me very much to meet his father figure, really, in, in the absence of his, after the death of his own dad. Saul Bellow, whom, if he was a great admirer, had become a close friend. I knew it was the, it was the best favor he could offer me. I mean, an introduction to Saul, a dinner with Saul Bellow in Vermont, was the, the most he had it in him to bestow. And so I knew I, I wanted to be at my best, and I didn't want to spoil the evening. And he knew I had a tendency to get involved in argument. He said, try and hold it down, because, you know, that's not what we want to talk about. And I couldn't have agreed more. I wanted to talk about literature and reminisce with Bello, which we did a lot of the time. But Bello wanted to vent at great length about an article in Commentary magazine about my, my late friend Edward Said. And that article, I had my own differences with Edward, and I described what they were. But this article I thought was grossly unfair. And I, after sitting through it for a bit, Bello didn't know that I was a friend of the person concerned. I thought, I'm going to have to say something. I'm sorry. And uh, I know Martin will hate it. So this was paying the cost of friendship, if you like, twice. Yeah. Uh, um, and Bellow, in fact, didn't mind so much. And Bellow, Bellow's an old street fighter. He was an ex-Trotskyist like me, been, took part in many political polemics, used to live in Chicago where people don't mince words, you know. But it was agony much more for Martin than it was for Saul, and that, that cost me a bit too. Uh, how has Martin reacted to news of your illness? Well, he's coming to see me next week. Um, he's... Uh, I guess I don't really know yet. I haven't seen him in person. How about Salman Rushdie? Have you heard from him? No, I've heard from I mean, it's been embarrassing, actually, how many people have written to me or 
in default of that, or, or as well as that, written about me, either on the web or, or in print. It's, I feel, you know, when Mark Twain was um, pronounced dead in the newspapers, he said rumors of his death had been greatly exaggerated. I, I read so many nice things about myself now, I begin to think that rumors of my life have been a bitter. <laughs> Apparently some incredibly sanely person has got sick. Of course, I mean, I also realize with a twinge that, you know, as time goes by, that will become background, too. Your memoir uh, is soaked with names and stories of these memorable and uh, significant contributors to fiction. But you wrote at page 275, I soon realized that I did not have the true stuff for fiction and poetry. And I was very fortunate indeed to have contemporary several practitioners of those arts who made it obvious to me without unduly rubbing in the point that I would be wasting my time if I tried. How did they do that, Hitchens? Well, by their mere existence. I mean, they didn't warn me off or anything. But when I was young, I knew I wanted to write. I knew it was all I wanted to do. And all I, all I, more or less all I was able to do if it comes to that. But anyway, it was more it chose me than I chose it. And at university and later, I knew a lot of people who would... I, I mean, at that stage, if you, I could have written a, you a poem or a short story. Um, and I guess even in my current reduced state, I probably still could try something of the sort. But I was very lucky in meeting people who did it passionately and devotedly and who just by osmosis and there was merely by reading their stuff and talking it over with them and sometimes being shown it in early forms i thought no wait a minute they have a there's an x factor in the, what they can write that i don't possess i i have in my book a theory as to what that is by the way don't know if you remember it but if the distinction between people who can write prose and, and fiction and poetry and those who can should stay with the essay form I think is this. All my friends who can do it have musical capacity. Oh, I remember now. They're yeah. one form or another. They, they can either play or they can appreciate or they can describe a musical event in a fairly educated way. I, since I was very young, I, the first thing I found that I really, really, really couldn't do was play a musical instrument at any level or understand musical theory or notation. It wasn't that I was bad. No one ever says they're good. It was I couldn't do it. It was like being dyslexic. Well, you say you also have an incapacity for chess and mathematics. Yes, I'm, I'm deformed. I'm short, I'm very short in all those departments. Huh. And those I find generally cluster the ability at chess and math and music. So I thought, okay, I've got I've only got one side of the brain. I keep forgetting which one it is that works. The other is sort of walnut sized. I, I think I do better to stay with the essayistic form. Are you aware of anyone who lacks that musical ability who is also well, a great novelist? Any, if I get any leisure, I, I've been encouraged to develop this theory because it seems that, that there must be something to it. I mean, you know, Shakespeare is full of music, for example, so is Proust. Um, Nabokov is a very strong test. He didn't like music. He didn't like having it played to him. But he, but he knew quite a lot about it and appreciated it. Um, the, more one, and the more one goes into it, the more it seems like quite a useful possible theory, but I've only got to its very crude adumbration so far. We come back from break. We're going to talk with Christopher Hitchens about his mother and his father, about how green is my valley, or green was my valley, and a number of other things. The book is Hitch 22. It's a remarkable book. It's a riveting memoir. It's listed over at HughHewitt.com and bookstores everywhere. Don't go anywhere. Christopher Hitchens and I continue our conversation when we return.
34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. A little Robert Dillon in the background there. Christopher Hitchens, another of the musical people that you refer to throughout the book, obviously impacting the 60s in your years in university. Have you kept up the, the taste for Bob Dylan? Yes, I also think, I mean, as well as being, he's no longer a great singer. His voice is shot. I know as badly as mine, but it's gone. But he used to have a very beautiful voice. There's a wonderful song. Um, I wish I'd mentioned it to you. Uh, earlier, we could have played uh, Spanish is the Loving Tongue. Um, very hauntingly beautiful song. And, and he had a lovely voice, but he was also, I think, a great poet. And was the, he's the background music to a lot of people of my age. I don't take a great deal of stock in generational thought. As you know, I think generational solidarity is the lowest form of solidarity there is. But I think that for every decade or so, the Every generation or so, there is there is a special voice, and certainly for my lot, it was it was him. And I would have liked him if he'd only written about lost love and uh, blues and and so on. But he he also had a few things to say about the war and the civil rights movement and so on. You've got a lot of commentary on poetry and poets in Hitch Twenty Two: James Fenton, Philip Larkin, Auden, Clive James. Uh, do you think some people have the incapacity for poetry that you have for chess and and mathematics? Because I think I might be among them. Oh, I'd be very sorry to think that. I mean, well, what do you think of um, of the liturgy, for example? What do you think about the book of Job? Well, yes, you're right. I do love that poetry. It, the it, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Yeah, it, it's poetry. It's harder, though. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to... I actually, I say this to my students, because the art, of, the art of poetry recitation, say, just to stand up or even sit down and be able to speak a Shakespeare sonnet, seems to have gone and is certainly no longer taught. And people, when I, I can do it, and people look at me as if I was doing something almost supernatural. I say, well, look, you all know the lyrics to several songs. And they all do. Without knowing it, they know them. They know them almost just by acquaintance. That's right. By attrition, perhaps almost in some cases. Um, but they think of poetry as something different, as a whole new reservation. So, so are, are poets more tragic than the fiction writers you've known, or are they the same kind of character? I think that um, if, I, if I take, say, my two favorite English poets, um, the ones I most often recur to, uh, Philip Larkin and W.H. Auden, both of them have a great understanding of tragedy and, and, and a keen feeling of, the, you know, in some ways, the absurdity of the human condition. But it's, it's also from the absurdity that they draw things that are quite mordantly funny as well. I don't think it's possible to have a sense of tragedy without having a sense of humor. Okay. Uh, I've got to ask before we get to the break. That's why we think so highly of Shakespeare, I think, is I, that he, he's able to perform on both those registers with such acuity. And I, and history as well. Uh, let me ask you about Richard Llewellyn, How Green Was My Valley. Yes. Did you tell the audience why it had such an impact on you? Yes, when I was quite small, I suppose about 10 or 11, I came across a tattered paperback of a book that your older listeners may have heard of. Um, or read, called Richard, he, the author was Richard Llewellyn. And the book is called How Green Was My Valley. It's not a question. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a way of saying in Welsh, how green my valley was, how green was my valley. Um, and it's a wonderful account of growing up as a young boy in a very self-enclosed com- community of Welsh-speaking coal miners in the valleys of the southern part of Wales. And I was living then on the, just the other side of the Bristol Channel in southern England um, in the rural 
part of the country, and only a few hundred miles away from this. And this book described to me the life of people almost on another planet. Though they were very close kin, but they worked underground, like the people in H.G. Wells, the Morlocks. They spoke another language. They joined unions and went on strike. Um, there was even a disobliging reference to Winston Churchill in this book. I'd never come across a disobliging reference to Winston Churchill before, <laughs> because as Home Secretary in, the, in 1911, he'd sent the British Army to put down the Welsh coal miners in a big strike in the, in the Rondo Valley. And um, it was just tremendously eye-opening to me to know of the existence of this, not just other people of another class, but in a way almost another race and nation and language. And I, I got to the stage where I could almost uh, have it memorized. It meant an enormous amount to me. It's also a very good bildungsroman, if you want, about this young boy, Hugh Morgan, and his growing up, and the various rites of passage that he underwent. It was an electrifying read. I read it again the other day. It's still pretty good. You know, I think it's going to spark, Hitch 22 is going to spark a revival on how green was my valley. Christopher Hitchens is my guest. We'll be right back after the break. America, stay tuned. The book is linked to HughHewitt.com. It's in bookstores everywhere. the Air America Hugh Hewitt, Judy Collins' version of the Bob Dylan song that Christopher Hitchens, my guest, referenced uh, Dylan and Collins and Baez throughout his memoir, Hitch 22. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, I'd like to talk to you about your mom and dad at this point. Um, uh, do you still have your mother's last letter to you? Yes. And, and where do you keep it, and how often do you read it? I have the same, now rather battered, and flaking uh, envelope of all her possessions and such as they were and all the relevant documents and, and the things that she left for me um, that was given to me by the British Embassy in Athens after her funeral in 1973. I have it all in one place and um, I look at it not very often these days. How often do you I think of it? By, well, for one thing, I know it by heart. Uh, that's, how often do you recollect it? For another, it? I'm not a great one for relics or mementos. I'm not, I'm not a great keeper of things. I, actually, one of my big regrets in my life now is that there are a lot of letters and things like that from people, interesting people, that I didn't bother to keep. Because I've often had to move in a hurry and you know, didn't want to be burdened with carrying too much. So, but I've, I've always resolved on the side of not being a pack rat, even a sentimental one. Now, you do not disclose the contents. I'm not going to ask you what they are, but I wonder, have you ever allowed anyone else to read it? No. And will you leave it for your children? Yes. I suppose I will. I don't think it will be very meaningful to them. The problem with it is, actually, I think I must have shown it to my brother, come to think of it, some years ago. Um, <clears throat> but not to my father, for whom it would have been too painful. I should perhaps explain why this is. Yes. My mother took her own life in Athens um, in company with her lover when their, when their affair just wasn't working out. And they, they, it was a time when divorce and adultery was still very scandalous in the English middle class. And it wasn't working out. And I think my mother couldn't see things getting any better. She didn't want to go on living. This was 
very obviously very very awful for me to discover but but I had known about the boyfriend which my father had not and my awful for my father to discover because it meant he discovered it through the you know, the announcement came in the newspapers it was actually reported she'd been murdered and he was a very private and reticent man and it was I think terribly shocking to him to realize everyone now knew that his wife wasn't living with him anymore <clears throat> and he didn't want to know when I came back, he didn't want to hear that I discovered that, in fact, it was a suicide pact. It wasn't a, wasn't a murder. So, and didn't want to discuss it any further. He was a very, very, very quiet man that way. Um, the, other, the second thing is, was that the note was written, I, I sort of wish she hadn't done this, but she, in her extremity, she addressed it just to me. I think thinking that I was the one who'd be able to come to Athens. I see. Uh, and I wish she hadn't done that because it, you know, it, it rather left my my other male Hitchenses out in the cold. The the portrait of and your... I had to, it took me a while to to uh, um, I'd wanted to protect them from that. Yes, thought, if you see what I mean. Yes, the portrait of your mother is is achingly tender and and very powerfully loving portrait of your father as well. In fact, I knew I was caught by your book after that because I knew you were going to be just breathtakingly honest in the course of this book. How difficult was it to write these portraits? Well, I knew I'd have to do it one day. Um, and I knew if I was ever going to do a memoir, I'd have to confront it. And the one about my mother I wrote first off when the publisher first asked me. And I did it, I did it in one night, in one go, and sent it off after I'd read it. Um, and wept, which I, I did more than I thought I was going to do. But I thought also to myself, would it make anyone else cry? I don't want it to do that. I don't want it to be mawkish. I, 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 want, it to, I want it to be better judged than that. So I said, I said to the publisher and my, and my editor, a very trusted guy, if this works, then I think I can do the book. If, I, if you don't think it does, I'm not sure I should go on. And that has taken me since some... Um, 1973. Uh, I'd, I'd often thought of trying to write about it, but to put it off. Well, it's, it's not mawkish. That's, well, thank you for saying that. It, no one else, no one has said it is. It, 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 it shouldn't, I think, bring a tear to anyone else's eye, but it should make people understand why it would to mine. And then the necessary counterpart, that was a bit harder to write, was about my father, why it was, his life was so, was such a sad one. You know, I know a lot of naval officers and Marine Corps officers who who fought in the same war as your father did and as reserved as he is. And I I thought that was an amazing story as well. But I wanted to ask you about one note on page 369 about the commander. Apart from the traditional stories of British daring, the only example of heroism and gallantry ever related to me by the commander, your father, was of the Francoist General Jose Moscardo, who refused to surrender the besieged Alcazar even when the Red Forces threatened to execute his son, Louis. What did you make of your father picking this one story to tell you, Christopher? Well, I, at the time, I didn't know it. Um, he just gave it to me as an example of you know, stoicism, courage in the face of the folk. And I would have been about eight, I suppose. But as I grew up and got to know him better and also discovered a bit more about what had been going on in the generation before I was born, I realized how right-wing my father was. I mean, he was a very, very conservative person indeed. And I think would, I, I know from his letters, the very few that remain, that he was very strongly pro-Franco 
in the Spanish Civil War. He had a slight sympathy for Mussolini as well. He wouldn't have, I think, have had any truck at all with any sympathy for Hitler. But he he was rather an authoritarian or an admirer of people who were, rather. Your brother arrived... He would often come up with very alarming remarks. I mean, I remember when I asked him once about... Well, he actually asked me when I'd been reporting from Northern Ireland at a certain stage. He said, well, what do you think should happen there? And I was sort of moaning on about this and that and power sharing and um, civil rights and all this. And he said, well, what I think it needs a jolly good dose of martial law. That's what he sounded like. As if, I think I say it in the book, as if the British had never tried the use of force in Ireland before. Yeah, you do say that. It was time to give it a workout. It's a good laugh out loud line. I'm talking with Christopher Hitchens about his memoir, Hitch 22, and we'll continue to do so throughout the balance of the show. Stay tuned. It's an amazing book. It's linked to HughHewitt.com and bookstores now. We'll be right back. 55 minutes after the Hour America, concluding Hour 1 of Hopefully 3 with Christopher Hitchens about his memoir, Hitch 22, in bookstores now. It's linked at HughHewitt.com. Christopher Hitchens, your brother Peter arrives on the scene of Hitch 22 relatively late, though with some very sincere, respectful nods. And I'm curious, was he friends with any of your friends? Could he even pass a day with Martin Amos? Oh, yeah, he could do that all right, but he's just... There's a crucial difference in age between us. I used not to notice things like birth order and um, age difference and so on until I became a parent myself. And I actually now think it may have some relevance. And then, then, I, then I thought, well, what does it mean for me? And I realized that my brother was born about a year and a half after me, because nearly more like two years. In other words, near enough to be a rival, if you see what I mean, and not, you're not far enough down to be below, to be a baby brother in need of protection. And so we were, it's a narrow but deep difference between boys of that age. And it goes on for life. You, know, you go to boarding school, as we did eventually, at different times. So you're in different classes in the same school. It's awkward. It can be. We weren't very much alike in temperament. If I were to like in temperament at all, I was much more like my mother. And he very liked my old man. Hmm. Um, and, well... As time went on and we, we grew up, we were very seldom in the same town. We didn't go to the same university. We adopted the same career. Interesting. Yes. And I don't think he did it at all to emulate me. And I'm sure he had the same feeling as, as I did, that it's the only real... Being a writer is the only real life for a gentleman. Uh, but if, if he's a very different kind of journalist from the one I am, I think. Uh, very, good, very good indeed at what he does. And has he reacted to Hitch 22 yet? Yeah, we, I do, we don't have that many friends in common, but actually in, um, none of my friends has any difficulty appreciating the point of him. Uh, it's just that he can be rather abrupt. <laughs> has he read Hitch 22 yet? Has he given yeah, you his... he was one of the first people to read it. And how did he react? Because, because, because I was finally going to have to deal as candidly as I could with my parents. And my upbringing, our upbringing, therefore, I thought he really had the right to see it. And he was very good about it. He suggested a few changes. He's, he's a very good family archivist. He, he's also got a, an exceptionally good memory. He was able to correct me on a couple of things as well. And, and generally with 30 seconds, has, it, has the extended Hitchens family, uh, wives and children, reacted well to Hitch 22? Um, yes, I would say they had, yeah. I mean, there's not much in it for them, if you like, because I try and make it more of a memoir than an autobiography. But yes, they've been rather sweet about it. 
When we come back, we're going to talk more about Hitch 22, especially the younger years and social status in Britain and uh, Hitchens' friends. Don't go anywhere. There's lots more ahead. The book Hitch 22 is linked at HughHewitt.com. We'll be right back. Morning, Gordon. Evening, Grace. America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Hour number two of a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, an extended conversation with Vanity Fair columnist and author uh, Christopher Hitchens about his brand new memoir, Hitch 22. I've linked it at HughHewitt.com. It's in bookstores everywhere. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, throughout Hitch 22, and this is jarring, I think, particularly for an American and maybe even for a Midwesterner more than others. There is this relentless awareness of your social standing and the social standing of everyone around you. And the first question I wrote down in my notes is, did that make you more generous to people that you knew were your intellectual lessers as a result of awareness of class? Would you mind running that last bit by me again, Hugh? Well, you run into people, you have to run into people every day who simply can't compete with your knowledge and your learning and your ability with words. But I've never seen you be cruel to anyone. I I mean, I've seen you debate with abandon, but not necessarily cruel. And I'm wondering if that comes from your awareness of of having been different social status from the people that you went to school from and whether you felt sympathy for people who didn't bring the same thing oh, to the well, table. You know, I have, I've got you now. It's a very ingenious question. I mean, uh, well, I can answer it in reverse order, perhaps. I, I, I certainly was brought up in a society very acutely conscious of all sorts of difference and, and all the vulnerabilities that that brings. You can, you can make a small mistake in, in language or etiquette in Britain, or you could when I was younger and really be made to feel it. And, you know, it's a flick of the lash, but it would, it would sting. And especially at school where there's not much privacy and, um, and so on, you could, yes, undoubtedly be made to feel um, crushed. By the way, it's not such a bad training. You realize that there are worse things than hurt feelings. Right. And I, um, but then, yes, you also learn that the absolute height of bad manners is to be rude to someone who is, I, I don't mean these words, but you know that what, what you would, would once have called one social inferiors. You, know, you, you mustn't be rude to waiters or servants or anything like that because it's taking advantage of something that's unfairly conferred on you. And did that carry over to intellectual life? Well, I'd like to think it did, but I, I think, have a feeling you may, slight, may be slightly overpraising me here because I can remember, for example, being extremely rude to the friends of Jerry Falwell, for example, when he died, and um, and being accused of speaking hurtfully and saying, "Well, you know, I didn't, I don't, I don't want it not to hurt." <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I feel very strongly about this. Now, there is one episode um, of cruelty in the memoir. It's a, it's in a note. It's buried on page sixty-eight. E. A. M. Smith, a brainless yeah. and cruel lad that you somewhat torment. Actually, uh, you can tell the story, but I'm curious as to why you included it and whether you regretted well, because, doing it. Well, because it, the, there's a famous story by George Orwell called Revenge. It's not a story. It's, a, it's an account of an episode in post-war Germany called Revenge is Sour. But when the boot is really on the other foot, actually, you get no satisfaction. You've often dreamed of what it would be like, but there's no satisfaction in putting the leather in. And this boy had been a bully to me at school. He was a horrible, uneducated resentful kid who tried to take it out on me when I was small. It wasn't, it wasn't hell, but I mean, I, I remembered it. I, I had to learn how to avoid him. And much later in life, I was going to work in London, my magazine, on the subway, and he came in to the subway car, carrying, wearing a smelly old overcoat and carrying bags of rubbish. 
and talking at the top of his voice and looking around him wildly, and I thought, good grief. And there was only one seat in the whole damn car, and he took it. It was next to me. And I thought, shall I do nothing? I thought, I can't do nothing. So I leant over and said, E.A.M. Smith, right? He jumped like a pea on a hot shovel. And I said, how do you know? And I said, I decided to be nasty. And I said, well, we've had our eye on you for some time. <laughs> so it's so horrible. He looked, he looked wildly around him and said, you know, beg me. And I said, no, you know, we, we, and we don't like what we see either. We, you know, you're not getting good reports. And I rubbed it into him for that. It was getting to the point where I was going to get off. It was my stop to change. And I thought of just leaving him there babbling, and I realized I couldn't do it. I actually was, I was rather pleased to find I hadn't got it in me quite to do that. So I said, no, it's, it's all right. It's, um, I remember you from school. And I gave him my name, and a flicker of recognition came into his face. He said, well, yes, that's right. I remember you. I used, I used to pray for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, carry on. Now, is that seed of cruelty the same thing that blossoms in other people unchecked into your general Videla and into the torturers about whom we, we learn more when you get to Iraq? I mean, is it is it always the same thing, but it's got to be nipped off? At the, isn't it everyone? I, I don't think many people are immune to it, especially those who've been. Auden says in his wonderful poem, <clears throat> 1st of September 1939, the greatest poem ever written in New York City by the opening of the Second World War, he's reflecting on what's happened in Germany, and he says, I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. It isn't always true. I actually slightly stopped the cycle. I could have been much nastier to him than I was. In the end, I just gave him a, an unpleasant surprise and then let him off with a warning. But I could have relished it. I know I had it in me. And I admire people who can get over it. I say in my chapter on Iraq in the book, that a horrible realization came to me one day after I'd, I'd been visiting the country for a while during the Saddam era, that the Iraqi police are always hunting down misfits and psychopaths and child molesters, not in order to imprison them, but in order to employ them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the definitions of a fascist system. It, it, it gives privileges and rewards to people who are potential or actual torturers and sadists and, and puts them in charge of things. Yeah. It, and it's not, it's depressingly easy, unfortunately, to recruit a force of that kind. Yeah, because I think it's, it's, it's a universal temptation. Now, I've got to ask you a technical question about Hitch 22, which is your use of notes. Uh, and, and, and someone getting a degree in Hitchens will have to pick through these page notes and decide where and when you use them. Page 181, you write, the synthesis for which one aimed was the Orwellian one of evolving a consistent and integral anti-totalitarianism. Now, that's a concise sort of life statement. Uh, on page 136, you're just being humorous. Uh, you're fired were the exact words I remember him using, saying it was impossible to go on to work for someone. And then you'd put Mailer and Buckley in a different... What was your theory of using a note as opposed to integrating it into the text? Well, partly because I had some second thoughts when I was going through. That happens to everyone. But also partly just to alleviate things a bit, to give people's eye a rest. And just put an asterisk and they can go... And I, used, I would try and put in a little surprise or perhaps a joke. It's just a way of... Um, Making it less of a trudge to read, I suppose. And so, is it is was it visual? I mean, so when I said the one you just the example you just gave, I'd say, well, I carried on in this job where I didn't work well and wasn't doing, wasn't really supposed to have the job um, until the day came when the editor said something to me that made it impossible 
for me to go on working for him, and then I just put in a footnote, um, you're fired, with exact words as, as, uh, as described. And it's a good laugh, but, I, but, right, yeah. but, but not all of them are laughs. Some of them are, are yeah. really quite serious, such as the Orwellian standard of consistent and integral anti-totalitarianism. That could probably have gone in the text, I agree. No, okay, I'm not editing. What did your editor work with you on this? Did he just give you free reign, or, or was he in there in the trenches on a sentence-by-sentence basis? Both. Um, but I, the advantage you have when you're writing a memoir is that it's very hard for anyone else to check. Only you really know the story, just as only I know what the real, real shortcomings of the book are. I'm the one who wakes up thinking, damn, I should have put that in, or I should have cut that bit or pruned it or extended that. I mean, I, it happens all the time. It's absolutely terrible. Is there anything that you really regret not having put in this, or did you launch it too early in anticipation of, 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 of uh, without allowing yourself, for example, the chance to write about illness and treatment and recovery? Oh, no, I'm, I'm very glad it doesn't end that, that way. Um, it does begin with a long meditation on death. Yep. Uh, because I, like Mark Twain, happened to have the chance to read about my own death in print, or at least about myself in the, in the past tense, just as I was finishing the book. And... Um, <laughs> Sorry, just excuse me, just as I was beginning the book. And so that, that gave me a, a very good mind-concentrating way of curtain-raising my life. I didn't realize probably that while I was writing that, I was probably already ill. It takes quite a while to develop these, these tumors. I, I probably was already mortally sick. Okay. Um, when we, is, is your illness in any respect related to drinking, do you know, Christopher Hitchens? Um, no. Um, it's not... If you drink, which I do, not as much as everyone thinks I do, but I've managed to do my share, or have done. No, I mean, I think it's much more, it's much more connected to having been a smoker. Okay, and, and you, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about drinking. Christopher Hitchens is my guest. His memoir is Hitch 22. It is, uh, it's now in bookstores everywhere. It's fascinating in its level of detail and its level of clarity and in its transparency. So I strongly urge you, I'll leave you with this message. Don't drink on an empty stomach. The main point of the refreshment is the enhancement of food. Don't drink if you have the blues. It's a junk cure. Drink when you are in a good mood. Cheap booze is a false economy. It's not true that you shouldn't drink alone. These can be the happiest glasses you ever drain. Hangovers are another bad sign, and you should not expect to be believed if you take refuge in saying you can't properly remember last night. Avoid all narcotics. These will make you boring rather than less and are not designed, as are the grape and the grain, to enliven company. We'll talk more about the grape and the grain when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show with Christopher Hitchens. And where have you been, my darling young one? 21 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hill with Christopher Hitchens, author most recently of Hitch 22, a memoir. We're playing some of the music that is mentioned throughout the memoir. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, talking about drinking. Uh, you write that you earned a reputation for imbibing on Fleet Street, which is impressive, actually. And you, you note that Webster the Cat was a piker by you. But it did not in any way... Uh, inhibit your ability to write? No, it didn't. Well, I, of course, I can't really be the judge of that, but um, I think there, there are two fatal mistakes with, with drinking. Some people think it helps them to write, and they... <coughs> excuse me, my voice is slightly shredding. Um, some people think it helps them to write and still can't write without it. People like William Faulkner, I think, are celebrated examples of that. 
that's pretty much death. First your writing will go, and then so will you. I never used it as a means of writing, as an aid to writing. I found I could drink and write, however. And there I would actually not just rely on my own word. I mean, many people have noticed that I can go from a dinner party and write a perfectly decent column, whereas most other people would prefer to go to bed. I, I can make alcohol work for me, in other words. I, I use it to prolong the moment, to sort of enhance things, keep a bit of a spin and an edge. Of course, if you have one more, one or two more than that, you can just become a bore and uh, be unable to write at all or write trash. But again, I've never, my worst enemies haven't accused me of that. You know, you mentioned that Clive James, one of your great friends and a poet, had a master-servant relationship with drink. Did yes. you? Master-servant relationship with, as I say of Clive, if some of your viewers, listeners will remember the film, with the, um, the booze played by Dirk Bogard. There's a famous film called The Servant, where Bogard is the sinister butler who dominates James Fox, his master in Chelsea. Um... Turbulent, yes, but I've never felt that I'm a slave to it. Okay. Uh, Bill Carter, your editor, once said, I don't think any newspaper is entitled to this level of loyalty when looking over your bar bill. Uh, very funny line. Uh, did, did it ever interfere with getting done something you wanted to get done? No. Okay. Um, no, no I, would, I mean, I would, I would really reproach myself for that. I've never been late for an appointment, for, for giving a speech, say, or, or a class. Never. I've never skipped a deadline. I've never shown up drunk at work, anything like that. But in my leisure hours, I've sometimes become a little bit expansive as I, you know, draw on my fund of anecdotes, limericks, and so on. Um, yes, I'd admit to that. Right. Uh, let's talk about... And yes, and I actually, there was a time when I used to drink gin martinis. I should confess it. Um, I gave up drinking gin altogether because the word, there were times where, I mean, I ought not, I'm not trying to soften the blue... It would make me quarrelsome, and I could, I would become argumentative and even a bit bellicose when there was really nothing really worth arguing for or about, and that was nasty. Um, and I, that's my big regret, I think. Now, I do want to talk about your friends at, at some length, and, and we'll get to the politics if your voice can hold out towards the end of the interview. But, yes. but you write about that the most, and I, I treasured these these portraits of your friendship, especially the big three: Martin Amos, Salman Rushdie, and Edward Said. There's like there's there's full and fine, disappointed and destroyed here. Uh, tell people about Martin Amos. Well, Martin is the most extraordinarily charming and witty and fluent person and also the most charming, witty, fluent and, and deadly serious um, instrumentalist of the English language known to me. I mean, certainly of our generation, shall we say. One of his novels, a novel called Money, is undoubtedly the, the novel of the, of the 80s, of the, for the Anglo-American sphere, at any rate. He, he manages to yoke together, though that's much too heavy a way of putting it, he manages to synthesize very brilliantly what is extremely comic and farcical, even, with what's tragic and what's serious. He once made a wonderful remark against a critic of his saying that the man had no sense of humor and by saying that of him he meant particularly to impugn his seriousness 
Now, now you, you do not, and this is a, a, applicable to his works as well as to everyone else you talk about here, you don't give the reader a break. You're just assuming they know these books like money and that they know these authors like Rushdie and, and that they're familiar with the, the great works of English literature for the last many hundred years. Did you just have to decide at the beginning you were just going to spare no quarter and they're just going to have to catch up? Yes, absolutely. And my reason for that is that's how I know most of what I know is reading a paragraph in a book and realizing that I was expected to get a reference there and I didn't quite get it, and regarding that as a reproach to myself. Well, that's like Adorno to me. I had no idea who this fellow was, and I, I had to read this with Wikipedia open. And, and well, I'm, aren't you glad? Well, yes, I am, but I'm wondering, isn't that rare these days? Didn't your editor say you can't do that, Christopher? People won't slog through with you. No, they didn't. No, there was no, there was no dumbing down, because dumbing down in this case, would not have been of me. I'd have had to find another way of saying what I already know. Yeah. It would have been much more boring. You're right. But it would also be very condescending to the readers. And I'd rather do anything than patronize people. I'd rather say, look, I know this. Um, There's no reason you shouldn't. And if you didn't, don't complain. I've just given you the opportunity to check it out. Yeah, check it out. And I, you know, I, I back myself, saying I think there is a gold standard in writing and in the world of ideas. And I know... I know something about it, and I'd, I'd like to introduce you to it, too. There is a tough account here of Kingsley Amos, the test of a true reactionary becoming a sulfurous anti-American, one aside. Did Martin mind your treatment of his father? No, and he's had to face it himself in his own memoirs and in other recollections. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that towards the end of his life, Kingsley had been a wonderful wit and raconteur and great literary critic and... Um, just the, the, the best of all possible company, and, and a tremendous teacher, too, a, a great instructor, is in a sense gave up. I mean, he, he, the face grew to fit the mask instead of sort of the, the full staffy and you know, large, jolly, rather drunk, overeating figure. He was full staff with a morose expression on his face mm-hmm. and a sort of grudge against life. And saying things that would once maybe have sounded funny because they would have been designed to outrage the liberals, but actually just sounded rather ugly. Like, you know, all American writers are either Jews or Hicks. There's nothing outrageous to the progressive consensus there. It's not tweaking the liberals or anything. It's just nasty and and boring and untrue. Now, Martin also, note on page 161, sent you a, a note upon the publication of God is Not Great being this bestseller. And, uh, and do you, is that, did you keep the note, first of all? Uh, no. Okay. Do, is the esteem of a friend the greatest currency? Be very hard to think of a, of a higher standard. And, and other than Martin's, whose praise and whose esteem did you value the most? You quoted his, so I assume his is the most valuable. Well, his was the most, but remember there's a backstory story when, when he had a, he, he, unlike me, he was very successful, both commercially and and with the reviewers. Um, very young, and so I sent him the telegram drawn from Scott Fitzgerald about early, called early, a story called Early Success. And he waited many years, and then he sent me a reciprocal one from Bello. It's so a wonder. I, the note I had to keep. It was just he said, "Look up this." this bit of better and you'll see what I mean. And he said this is payback. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. I'll be right back with Christopher Hitchens. The memoir Hitch 22 is linked at HughHewitt.com. We'll be right back. When you're lost in 
34 minutes after the hour, Americans Hugh Hewitt with Christopher Hitchens playing just like Tom Thumbs Blues, the line just like the rain in Juarez. Uh, another song that you reference in uh, Hitch 22, Christopher Hitchens. Yes, when I first came to the U.S. in 1970, I traveled around the country on a Greyhound bus. And one of the places I visited was was uh, El Paso, and I made my first crossing to Mexico to Juarez. It was a, lot, a bit easier and a lot nicer then than it is now. Um, and that and the song, the Simon and Garfunkel song about counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike and others, when I came back to England, would hear these songs again. I, I could now see the places. I could feel them in a way I hadn't been able to before. So a lot of my yearning to, to come to the U.S. had, had been to do with, with the music at the time. We're going to get to that journey a and little various bit. places, Manhattan notably, and San Francisco. And so on. And now, now I'd seen them and I felt... I felt as if I had really come to a new world. Uh, let me skip ahead then to America, since we're talking about this. You, you said you went out to, to San Francisco, but by the time you've heard of a scene, it has almost invariably moved on or decayed, and that yes. was the case with San Francisco? Yes. And, uh, I think it's Larry McMurtry in one of his novels. Maybe, um, maybe Lonesome Dove. One of the cowboys sees a sign in a, in a saloon advertising a Wild West show. And goes and sits down and thinks at the table, and um, it takes him a while to work it out because once once it's on a poster in a saloon advertising a show, it means it no longer exists. <laughs> um, that's roughly it, and I think that's a general general axiom. If you if you set your compass to San Francisco in '69, '70, because you want to see the Summer of Love, or whatever, it, it won't be going on when you get there. You're you'll, you'll get you'll get the rip off version. I learned that quite early. Uh, here's your description of America. Here was a country that could engage in a frightening and debilitating and unjust war and undergo a simultaneous convulsion of its cities on the question of justice for its oldest and largest minority and start a national conversation on the rights of women and turn its most respectable campuses into agitated seminars on right and wrong and have a show trial of saboteurs in Chicago where the incredibly guilty defendants actually got off and put quite a lot of this onto its television and movie screens in real time. This seemed like a state of affairs worth fighting for, at least fighting over. Is that when the hook was in, Christopher Hitch? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, I was so impressed <laughs> by, the, by how much chaos and uh, apparent you know, uh, disorder and color and violence even the society could absorb while still being very self-critical, very reflective, very humorous, and, and very welcoming to strangers, including strangers who were mainly interested in its woes and its, in its difficulties. That's what you, you write the extraordinary hospitality of America is one of the big three differences between the U.K. and the U.S.A. Is that still true, do you think? I sure hope so. I mean, I'll, I won't... Yes. I mean, I think I can say that it is because... Young people from my old college in Oxford still come over on a scholarship program, the same one that brought me. And I sometimes run into them, and they, they're always very impressed by how, how willing Americans are to say, well, come and stay, and they mean it. They don't just mean come for dinner. They mean come and stay at our place, and um, we'll show you around. Yes, I think, I think there is still that extraordinary welcoming character to the country. One of the interesting things I, I wrote down, when you decided to move to America, you had to have been making a conscious decision, you were not going to see your friends, who are obviously so close and dear to you, like James Fenton, who's sort of the runner-up in the Friendship Olympics with you. And how much did that hold you back, or is it just something you said, oh, it's modern, we can travel, we can talk? 
Well, it's not like going to Brazil or Australia yeah. um, or India if you live in England. I mean, it's and especially if I was going to live as I did and tended on the East Coast. That's the first thing. And, and, you know, it's possible to fly back. Let us take three days. There's a five-hour telephone difference. It's not, it's not that much of an alienation in some ways. In fact, in many ways, I wish I'd, I'd settled somewhere a bit less um, imprinted with Englishness than the East Coast. It might have been more of an adventure for me, but I had a certain idea of New York and Washington and what I wanted to do there. And that's the first thing. The second is most of the friends I have are the sort of people who have the same, roughly the same attitude to America and, and come often. Um, and in the case of James Fenton, now teaches, at, teaches poetry at New York University, for example. Is he a Christian? No. Because he, he's, he, the son of a, he's the son of a famous Anglican theologian in England. He's not a believer in the supernatural, no, but I think I've always felt that a lot of his ethics are formed by a certain kind of Anglicanism in the same brother, the same way as W.H. Auden's were. It would be a wonderful thing to have a friend write a portrait of, uh, of you the way you wrote about Fenton. It's, a, it's really quite a tribute to him. I'll be right back with Christopher Hitchens. The memoir is Hitch 22. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Four minutes after the hour, America. Hugh Hewitt, that's the America song that my guest Christopher Hitchens referred to in the last segment. Hitchens' new memoir, Hitch 22, in bookstores now. It's linked at HughHewitt.com today. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, just a note on Ulster. Uh, my, the Hewitts are from Ulster. I was in St. Field last summer, in fact, because that's where my great-grandfather departed from in the last uh, 140 years ago. Do you think after the portrait, and, and you, you write this arresting portrait, you almost get Fenton killed over there. That Ulster is now healed, is it going to last? Well, I, I do think that the, um, the likelihood that there'll ever be another Republican <coughs> excuse me, attempt to unify Ireland by violence, um, the likelihood of that is somewhere near nil now. They gave it what one must not call their best shot. They gave it their worst shot. Um, a lot of people were needlessly killed as a result. And, and, do you... and it was discovered what they could have been told, that they could have known from the very beginning, that it's not possible to move, just to take an example, a million and a half staunch Ulster Protestants into another state by force. You can't do that. Um, amazing to think that they had any other impression. I think what they hoped would happen was the, the, the attitude of people on the, the United Kingdom mainland would change, and they'd say the Ulster Protestants are more trouble than they're worth. And there was a risk of that, I think, at one point, because of the extreme unattractiveness of, of Ian Paisley and his sectarian leadership, and also of the terrible behavior of the Protestant Unionist, Loyalist uh, paramilitary groups. Does, the, does what has happened in Northern Ireland give you hope for places like Iraq and other war-torn places that eventually civil society can emerge even from the chaos of a long civil war like that? Well, I've seen it happen in other places, too. I mean, actually, a great book for someone to write would be not on how societies melt down, countries like Uganda, say, um, or Ulster for a while, or Lebanon for a long time, but how it is they come back. I mean, 
Uganda now has all kinds of trouble, but it's a really quite thriving and prosperous and interesting country. I've been there recently. And, you know, you remember what it was like in the Amin years. It looked as if it had lost its pulse completely. There was nothing left worth fighting over. There wasn't one brick piled on another. It nearly got like that in Sarajevo and other parts of the Balkans, too. What I think happens is that people realize that they get either to the edge and have a good look over it and see what's coming, or they actually go over, and it doesn't stop until there's nothing worth fighting over. Now, but I in the end, uh, people do recover their senses, yes. And then there's a point I make that's not so optimistic, not that that last point was very optimistic, which is this. I, I noticed in, um, in Belfast, first I've noticed it since, it's certainly very true in places like Baghdad and Beirut. A lot of the so-called local warlord leaders and so on don't actually want there to be a solution. Yes, they you... want the pot to keep boiling because that's how they can keep control of the drug rackets, the smuggling, the, the weapons trades, um, the shakedowns. Their status. So and also it's, it also means that people will bring camera crews to their houses and treat them with respect and they'll be invited to summits and consulted by the UN so they can th people who are just basically pimps and, um, and and thugs can be treated as if they are statesmen and they don't want this to stop yeah. and that unfortunately is a very powerful feature in human nature I want to move to Salman Rushdie Valentine's Day 1989 a fatwa issues against him you write on page 268 of hitch 22 i felt it once here was something that completely committed me it was if i can phrase it like this a matter of everything i hated versus everything i loved and there is an undeniable note of disappointment with rushdie in hitch 22 however because in the end how would you would you say he compromised with the ayatollahs oh no i mean he made he made a good faith attempt that he himself now wishes he had not, um, under a great deal of pressure from the British Foreign Office, um, who claimed to be worried about the fate of the British hostages in Lebanon and was trying to give him the phony thought that he, his novel was making the predicament of the hostages worse. They attempted to broker a deal with the, with the leaders of the Regent's Park Mosque in London, whereby if Salman would make a full apology and announce that, that he'd return to the fold of Islam in which he'd been born and so on, they would drop any attempt to kill him. And he did write a piece saying why he'd embraced Islam, which he's since repudiated. I, I described the repudiation in some detail in my book. And I thought, when I read it, I thought that was very sad that he, he felt he had to do that. But I was also very sure that the other side wouldn't keep its bargain, which of course it did not. Mm -hmm. uh, they never meant to. Um, they're very shady and dishonest. They have no concept of telling the truth. Did, uh, did you ever discuss... The well, I thought it was worth his while putting them to the test, let's say that, even though it was a bit of a wince-making event at the time. Did you discuss the fatwa with Edward Said, about whom you have this amazing falling out at the end, which we'll talk, but did you ever discuss that particular episode with him? Oh, very much so. In fact, I think I say in the book, I was having dinner with, at Edward's house near Columbia University one evening when... An advanced copy of the Satanic Verses was brought up from uh, the office of um, Salman's agent, Andrew Wiley, with a note saying, Dear Edward, I'd like you to take a look at this because I know that there will probably be some complaints from the faithful. In other words, Salman perfectly well understood that if he was going to use verses from the Quran for literary purposes, there would be people who said that was blasphemy by definition. 
And he wanted Edward's opinion, not that Edward is a Muslim. It was from a famously Christian family of Palestinians in Jerusalem. But um, Edward was involved from the very early stages, and he and I spoke at the very first protest meeting downtown after the Ayatollah had issued his death threat backed by money. Because where I, where I got confused is, is you wrote about... And Edward, Edward also, I should add, I mean, defended someone and attacked the front where we did it in downtown New York, where that week there was indeed maximum security and quite a lot of alarm, but... Edward did it at Al-Azhar University in Cairo and also at Berzeit University on the West Bank. He was very brave about it. Uh, you write, though, that the cloud that overshadowed our conversation was then no bigger than a man's hand, but it was the cloud of the Ayatollah and his unwillingness to, to go after Islam in the, in the full-throated way, wasn't it? In the end, the dispute between Edward and myself did also in, involve attitudes to the Ayatollah. He didn't like the Ayatollah, but he thought that the Iranian Revolution was all the fault of the United States, and I thought that was hopelessly simplistic. We'll come back with more conversation about Edward Said and Christopher Hitchens and the memoir Hitch 22. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Christopher Hitchens. One more hour ahead. But in this in this short segment, Christopher Hitchens, you did not attend the funeral of Edward Said, for he had called you a racist. Uh, uh, why? Yeah, well, that's yes, that's putting it rather bluntly, but I suppose it's true, yeah. So explain to the audience what happened, because it was... He, made a, he, gave a, he wrote an article or gave an interview, I now forget exactly which, to a magazine run by some Saudi princeling in London, in which he quoted an opinion of the Iraq war without giving its author, and said this was typical of the kind of racist talk you got in the United States. I read the, uh, an Iraqi friend sent me the translation, and with a chill I realized that the words complained of were mine. He did not go as far as to say my name, for which I wasn't sure whether I respected him or didn't, because I thought if he should, I should say it or not with a charge like that. Anyway, my view about that is if someone thinks they're racist, they're saying they don't want you for a friend. You have to take it seriously. It's not like saying you're a dunderhead. Um, the word shouldn't lose its toxicity, as it has, you know, it's in some danger of doing. So I sort of made it the occasion for a slight frideur. And um, uh, when, when he died, I didn't hear from his family. I, I decided that I hadn't really got the right to go to the funeral. I wasn't disinvited. I think I could have gone. Do you regret that that friendship ended that way? Terribly regretted, yes. I mean, well, among other things, I very much regret that Edward was taken from us so young by, by leukemia. Um, but I'm afraid that had he lived longer or had he recovered his health, our, our, dis our disagreement would have been correspondingly um, fierce. It, it would have, the, the, the differences between us would have become a lot more emphatic. And a last question for this hour, which is uncategorizable. Uh, your contempt for sports is not contempt, but your distaste for sports is throughout, even though Amos is a, is a soccer lover. But you recommend CLR James Beyond a Boundary, a cricket book. And I, I think you're honest in, in suggesting that the reader actually read a book about cricket. Yes. Well, I'm not sure that cricket really counts as a sport. I think of it more as an art form. I mean, a proper cricket match is supposed to last three days with everyone playing a series of of, of roles. It's a bit more like a ballet if it's properly done. And C.L.R. James, the great Trinidadian Marxist, thought that it was a, a great training for character and a great introduction to English literature and, uh, and to the Greek classics as well. He thought it contained all the virtues. You also write his, um, his history... It's a, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful book in that way, a wonderful post-colonial book. You also write his history of the Haitian Revolution had a lasting effect on you. We only have 30, 40 seconds. How? 
It's called Black Jacobins. It's about how, the, under the leadership of Toussaint Louverture, the Haitians decided to take seriously the French slogan of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and were taught very cruelly by an invasion that, that, that was supposed to be for white French people only. On that note, stay tuned, America. I have one more hour with Christopher Hitchens. His memoir, Hitch 22, will capture you and it will it will educate you. It's wonderful. Do not miss it. I'll be right back with Hitchens. Stay tuned. Morning, glory, and grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, and I am taxing the voice of Christopher Hitchens, whose new memoir, Hitch 22, is in bookstores now. I do so in the service, though, of getting you to read this because I think uh, you will find it amazing. Christopher Hitchens, uh, on page 362, there's a paragraph. Uh, I'll just read it. I used to love the detail that Hampshire's new forest is so-called because it was only planted for the hunt in the late 11th century. I remember watching with my father and brother through the fence of Stansted House, the Sussex mansion of the Earl of Bessborough, one evening in the early 1960s, and seeing an immense golden meadow carpeted entirely by grazing rabbits. I'll never keep that quiet or be that still again. Now, I bring that up because it, it's about memory and a memoir. What is the purpose of a memoir for the reader? Since it's a, it's a life uniquely lived, full of unique memories like that, why do it? Um, it's a tougher question than it sounds. I, I think the refuge I'll take, uh, which isn't um, just a refuge, is a lot of people wanted to know if I was going to do one. I didn't get pushed into it exactly or talked into it. But I, I got to an age first. I was, I was 61 in April. And I just turned 60 when I started writing, I think. Got to an age where you are increasingly looking over your shoulder. That was when I was still, as far as I knew, healthy. That's the first thing. The second was, as I think I told you, reading about my own death was a great concentrator of the mind. Um, or reading about myself in the past tense. And then the third was a lot of people asked me if I wanted to try one. And, and I, I, essentially it was more a question of, why not than why? It, I, I edged into it. I backed into it. I didn't do it frontally in the way of taking on other books, thinking this is what I really must do now. But you didn't just write the political memoir that I was expecting. This this paragraph about Hampshire's New Forest, is it didn't have to be in there. Why include details like that? Late in the book, by the way, it's it's an aside. It's a, it's a grasp. It's something that didn't really fit in the narrative. Why? Well, it's, no, it, it's intended to be part of a contrast. I mean, I think it's in a sec section called Landscapes of Memory, but yes. it's very, very tranquil and orderly and traditional and long-cultivated um, downlands of southern England, to the scene of most, much of my boyhood, with only a few hundred miles away across the channel, the appalling landscape of the German-Polish frontier. And the, the awful churnings and hells that have occurred there in the last several decades, um, which is where my mother's family came from. Uh, so it was an attempt to sort of draw a contrast between the assumptions of tranquility that you can make if you're English because and the ones that you can't make if you come from the German-Polish border. And then, if, if I'm not wrong, I, I, I move on from discussing that wonderful carpet of grazing rabbits to one of the most successful novels ever written about southern England, which is Watership Down. Yes. Which, in fact, does describe a genocide. Yes. And an, a mass extermination campaign, but only against floppy-eared inhabitants. 
that's the worst it could get, you're always meant to feel in Britain. Uh, for so it the... is there for a reason. It's not just there to be evocative or bucolic. Uh, it, I thought it was an exercise. It, it's beautiful. So I thought it was an exercise in just occasionally letting go with your pen. Uh, well, it's also, it helps, I think, to understand what formed my father and my grandfather. Real Southern English peasantry. Your it's mother's important, side. It's important to know about, about that. And the, the Saxon flint churches in a little fold of the Downs and all of this stuff is very, very hard to express, but it goes to make up a very long, marinated identity. And it combines with this other identity, and the short form is Blumenthal of Kempen migrates to Liverpool and has 13 children, of whom one marries Lionel Levin, births your grandmother Dorothy Levin in 1896. The Blumenthals become Dales and the Levins Lins, and your mom meets your dad in the war. How, how did you discover, for the benefit of the audience, your Jewish history? Well, my mother, as we were discussing, died young and at her own hand. Um, and my father... Died. Uh, he made fairly good innings. He died of what I've now got, of the cancer of the esophagus, at the age of 79. Thought that gives me some pause, of course, now. Um, but neither of them succeeded in outliving my mother's mother, the Mrs. Levin Dodo, who you've just been talking about. And she had, therefore, no further need to keep the family secret, you see. My, my mother hadn't wanted anyone to know, including her husband. So the commander did not know? He did not know, nor did his father, nor did anyone, um, except a few of my mother's chosen, very carefully chosen friends. Um, it, the, I think there were two reasons for keeping it quiet. One, my father would not have sort of minded having a Jewish wife. I'm certain of that. But his father, I think, would have minded. I, I used to hear a lot of rather second-rate um, anti-Jewish banter from him. He was an old Calvinist fundamentalist. Uh, that, that wouldn't have gone over well. Um, and then I think that my, my grandmother suffered a little bit from minor, low-level persecution in the 30s, and my mother just didn't want any of this to happen to my brother and myself. She wanted us to pass as English as she could and to be brought up as English gentlemen. You, you can be the judge of how well that worked out. <laughs> so, and then, just by coincidence, around this time, my, my brother, Peter, had got engaged to a Jewish girl and taken her to see Granny, Dodo. And um, so Dodo just basically decided to come right out with it. Would it have changed how you would have fared at Oxford? Not at Oxford, no, I don't think it would. Um, and looking back on my, my earlier school days, the, I, would have, I would have been the only Jew at my at my boys prep school between the ages of 8 and 13 we didn't, no one I mean, the concept of being Jewish didn't exist there as far as I remember I was at a rather broad minded and open boys boarding school in Cambridge after that where there were quite a few Jewish boys they, they were occasionally mocked a bit or, or, and put upon but nothing horrible they were able to hold their own uh, did it change your view of Israel after you came to understand you were Jewish no not really there's a long chapter here on Israel, and your discussion with Jeffrey Goldberg about a man falling out of a burning building is fascinating. But, but you had always been a huge critic of the state of Israel. Yes, well, I still am in some ways. Uh, my, the, what's most, most mostly changed in the recent past with me is my attitude towards Israel's enemies. Yes. Um, I mean, most notably, well, any, you take any example you like, the Turkish aggression against Israel recently or against Gaza recently. 
the intervention on the side of Hamas, I mean, would be a very good example. But you know, I've been to rallies of Hezbollah in southern Beirut where they they flaunt their party flag, which is a nuclear mushroom cloud now, a nice campaign symbol, uh, which is adorned with warnings to the Jews and so forth. I, I couldn't be neutral about that, whether I was Jewish or not, I like to think. Yeah, what if it proves only to be the only Please. bulwark? Sorry? If Israel turns out to be the only bulwark we've really got against Islamist fascism and the Homanists, isn't it going to, aren't you going to regret your opposition to them in it the was, earlier years? It, I said in my most recent column, in order for Israel to become part of the alliance against whatever we want to call it, religious barbarism, theocratic, possibly thermonuclear theocratic or nuclear theocratic aggression, it, it can't, it, it'll have to dispense with the occupation. It's as simple as that. If it, it can be, you can think of it as a, a kind of European-style, Western-style country, if you want, but it can't govern other people against their will. It can't continue to steal their land in the way that it does every day. Um, and it's uh, unbelievably irresponsible of the Israelis, knowing the position the United States and its allies are in around the world, to continue to behave in this unconscionable way. And I'm afraid I know too much about the history of the conflict to, to think of Israel as just a tiny little island surrounded by a sea of ravening wolves and so on. I mean, I know quite a lot about how that state was founded and the, the amount of violence and dispossession that involved. And I'm a prisoner of that knowledge. I can't unknow it. Even if we, you, you see clearly, obviously, you've been to Beirut, you see clearly what they're up against now. This is sure. a, it's a, you know, it's a there suicide a, I mean, nation. I say in my, in my book that there's a qualitative degeneration. There was a time when Unfortunately, we didn't recognize the PLO at this stage. We refused to out of our own stupidity. But where there was a roughly speaking secular nationalist opposition to the Israelis, it was very badly, quite badly led by Arafat would be euphemizing it. You know what I mean, terribly badly led. But still, the, you can have an intelligent conversation with the Palestinian leadership in those days. And I often did, both under occupation and in exile. And you still can with some of the ones on the West Bank who are striving, striving against terrible odds to build up, still, the sinews of statehood in places like Ramallah. Um, but the turn by the Palestinians, or by some of them, to parties like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and to the state patrons of those parties, the Iranian theocracy and the Syrian sectarian dictatorship, the two most retrograde regimes in the region, is a, is a moral disaster. It is, when we come back from break, I'll ask you, though, was it ever... Well, we'll wait for after the break. Christopher Hitchens is my guest in the memoir, Hitch 22, linked at HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned. Minutes after the hour, America, Hugh Hewitt, joined by Christopher Hitchens. His memoir, Hitch 22, linked to HughHewitt.com. Bookstores everywhere. He mentions Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. That's why I'm playing it. And his disappointment that Mr. Maguire has become an evangelical Christian, I might add. But it's well, a marvelous... I have a feeling he was then, and we didn't realize it because everything at the time seemed so apocalyptic. That was 
one of the songs that was the background to the late 60s. And you go off to Cuba in the late 60s, and I want to tie this back to our conversation about Israel and, and the Palestinians. And you ask the Cuban director, you're in this work camp. Honestly, I think that's the most bizarre part of this whole book, is that somehow you got talked into going to cut down sugarcane in Cuba in the 60s. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> no one who's ever seen me or met me um, would ever imagine me with a machete in my hand, bent double under the hot sun. I was not up for that. I was planting coffee seedlings. Okay. <laughs> in the shade. Um, and not just because it's lighter work. Um, but because the whole plan was to help diversify the Cuban economy so it would no longer be dependent on the old colonial products like sugar and tobacco. We had a sort of scientific approach to the matter. But, but you upset your comrades because you asked this director, you know, why can't we criticize Castro? And you, you write, if the most salient figure in the state was immune from critical comment, then all the rest was detail. Ah, never forget how useful the obvious can be. And so when I was reading your part about the Palestinian, no one could ever criticize Arafat. The same obvious detail about these societies has always been there. Sure. The obvious is very, the obvious is very handy. I mean, it was a, a very famous movie director called Santiago Alvarez. He's internationally well-known. He was brought to this sort of seminar camp that we were partly work, partly propaganda, partly de, you know, Marxist debate. And I asked him, well, what's it like you know, being... Working in the arts in Cuba, he said, we, you know, we have very untrammeled, it's not like the Soviet Union, you know, there's great artistic freedom here. And there was indeed in those days quite a lot of burgeoning of magazines and movies and so on in Cuba, and cultural writing. It was, it was, it was brief, but it was real. But then I, and I said, well, would this, for example, would this extend so far as to criticism of the, of the leader? And he said, well, no, obviously not. We, we wouldn't expect to be able to say anything critical or rude about the Supreme Leader. And I thought, well, that's not an exception, is it? I mean, it's not. With the exception of that, everything's okay. He's the most important person on the island. So I, I made this remark past, and a terrible coldness descended on the meeting. And I was later told that people had started to view me as a potential counter-revolutionary, which you know, really people were talking like that. It was, it was as if one had been called a capitalist running dog or a I forget how it goes now. Lackey of the bourgeoisie or hyena or something. But people actually do talk in this way. But but, it's very educational. And it's also the one question that, throughout the whole book that you can always say about the regime that, that's under your looking glass. If, if you're living under the regime and you can take a shot at the leader, you're in a pretty decent place. But if you can't, you're not. I would say that was an axiom. And the other, the other thing that struck me very forcibly... Um, on arrival in Cuba was that we were greeted by these lovely young Cubans and given frozen daiquiris at the airport and there was lots of sort of color. It was quite sexy. It wasn't at all like going to East Berlin. But then there's a passport, please, hand it over. Then there's a bit of an interval. Then I said, okay, you've done with my passport. No, we hold on to that. You need to hold on to it. We give it back to you when you leave. I immediately felt bad. I don't want to be separated from my passport. Hmm. Um, it also... It underlined the fact, I mean, say what you could about Cuba. You, could, you were allowed to leave, you still are, but you couldn't take anything with you, and you couldn't come back. Now, again, however much I liked somewhere, if I was told I had to stay, a bit like heaven, um, that it was going on forever, I'd hate it right away. Uh, a couple of digressions. Uh, I don't much understand John Sparrow, the warden of all souls, but I like the fact that he was giving you a hard time as an undergraduate. What was, what was his job? What was his role in your life? Well, his role in the life of the University of Oxford was to 
act the part of the most comic antediluvian reactionary um, that it was possible to pick a, a man who lived in a, a college that was full of vast riches of endowment that was famous mainly for its dining and its port. Um, that was almost a, almost a parody of Oxford as the home of lost causes and of extreme monarchical and uh, Anglican uh, conservatism. I mean, we, we can hardly believe there was someone as amusing as that still around in the 60s. Now, I, but he was very useful for dialectical purposes. <laughs> At page 219, though, you write, when you get to America, at all costs, I didn't wish to seem superior. I hadn't read The Loved One for nothing. But it seems as though your entire university training is designed to make you be superior when you get to America. Well, the slogan of my old college, Balliol, is that of you can tell a Balliol man by his effortless superiority. But if it's, if it's effortless, of course, then it shouldn't be something that you inflict on other people. The few no, the, 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 there has been, in, um, and there still is sometimes, a certain kind of English person, quite well described by Tom Wolfe, actually, in The Bonfire of the Vanities, and, and brilliantly described by Evelyn Waugh in his novel, The Loved One, who come to the United States basically to exploit the generosity and naivete um, of the Americans. It's, it's, a Henry, it's a Henry James trope. European experience and American innocence. It's interesting you bring up Tom Wolfe. Uh, you've got the feud detailed in the book. Uh, uh, were you Peter Fallow? No. Okay. That's, I was not. It, I mean, I couldn't have been because Peter Fallow was a sort of haunter of the apartments of Park Avenue and the, the relevant salons, and no one's ever suggested I was anything like that. So is um, the Wolfe feud just a... No, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty well known who the uh, model for Peter Fallow is. Oh, I don't know that. Who is it? I don't think he'd mind my saying, but it's a man called Anthony Hayden Guest. Okay, I didn't know. And, uh, well, I was the co- he was an old friend of Wolf's. And Wolf, I think, I-, I was the cause of a quarrel between the two of them because I got Anthony to introduce us when I was writing a profile of Wolf that turned out to be very critical. And I'm afraid that Wolf rather blamed Anthony for the introduction and I think, as a result, harshened the description of Peter Fallow in the, in the novel. Right. Are there other memoirs out there, whether... Uh, classics like Rousseau's or Augustine's Confessions or more, more, more modern ones that you look to that you hold up as an example of a memoir well done? One that I um, refer- found myself referring to as well as recurring to quite a lot is the, the memoirs of Arthur Kerstler, who was the great, the great, the great model of the sort of deracinated multi-competent European intellectual of the, of the age of the dictators, the age of totalitarianism, and famously the author of Darkness at Noon. He had, his, his memoir is one of the best in describing the agony of having to change your mind and change your allegiances under, under the pressure of, of events and under the, the pressure of allegiance to principles. We come back, we're going to talk about that in the context of Christopher Hitchens' life, in the context of Iraq, the Balkans, and especially Sarajevo. Don't go anywhere. Hugh Hewitt Show continues with Christopher Hitchens. The memoir is Hitch 22. It's linked at HughHewitt.com. All my bags are packed. 
I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. 34 minutes after the hour, America Chew here with Christopher Hitchens. And uh, I already have told you I knew that Hitch 22 was uh, uh, almost achingly transparent when he wrote about his parents. But as soon as he confessed to a love of Peter, Paul, and Mary, I knew it had to be true all the way through. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, that surprised me a little bit on your musical playlist. No, I, would, I didn't say that. I think I said that song you just played. Yes. Was, was another of those generational uh, background ditties, and it, it meant a particular thing to me because um, coming to America, it, it was astounding how easy it was to fly. If you were kidding me, flying to my parents was an almost unheard of luxury to all my parents' friends, too. Very, very rare thing, undertaken very seriously. And if you wanted to move around Britain, you went to, on some train, or if there were any roads worth the name, you have to negotiate those. One of the great feelings of freedom I had coming to the States in 1970, when you could go to the airport with a youth fare card and basically get on any plane that had a spare seat for pennies and take wing and fly over the Great Lakes or go to California. It, it really was like spreading the wings. Right. And so that song did that for me, sickly saccharine, in fact, though in many ways it is. Let me ask about the two great political episodes in Hitch 22, the Balkans and Iraq. Yes. Well, you write about the Balkans, and especially Sarajevo, that it really meant the left was collapsing. And I think it's persuasively argued. Would you summarize it for the audience, what that meant to the left when Europe exploded and the left was silent? Yes. It, what it meant was that after the collapse of official communism in 1989, there was only one nominally communist socialist regime left in Europe that hadn't been part of the Warsaw Pact for some time or of the M Moscow orbit, and that was... Yugoslavia, which were, to, I'll, I'll condense it a bit, what, there was a, a mutation from state socialism into state national socialism. In other words, the assets of former Yugoslavia were taken over by Slobodan Milosevic and a gang around him in the Serbian Socialist Party. So as to create, out of a slowly dissolving federation, a greater Serbia by force and to get that by the means of ethnic cleansing. So a pretty classic fascistic recipe. They, they, they took over the Yugoslav National Army, which had been the army of the whole country. They took over a lot of the assets of the country, and they embarked on a campaign of effectively genocide against Bosnians, Bosnian Muslims, Croatian Catholics, and others, in the name of Serbo-nationalism, also of Serbian Orthodoxy, Serbian Christian Eastern Orthodoxy, which had its own appeal to the Russian right wing and other nasty recrudescent groups at the time. And I thought, well, good God, surely NATO can't stand by or Europe can't stand by and see fascism come back and massacre civilians, bombardment of civilian cities right on its border um, just after the end of the Cold War. But no one, no one in Europe was able to do anything about it. Most of the European countries backed the same client they would have done in 1914. You know, the Austrians stayed with the Slovenians, the, the Germans... Um, tended to back the Croats. Uh, the French and the British were pro-Serbian. It was pathetic. And as you remember, it went on for years. We just had to watch it happening. Yes. Pul pulverizing of this society. And the, you know, rape camps, um, scenes of people being stuffed onto trains for deportation. Amazing stuff. Until finally the United States decided to intervene. And I thought, now, if the left can't take a lesson from that, 
um, when will when will it? What would it take? And when the United States decided to intervene, and it put a stop to it too. It it not just put a stop to the the, the mass murder and ethnic cleansing in Sarajevo and elsewhere, but it got rid of in the end got rid of the Milosevic regime and restored Serbia to some form of democracy. If the left had had its way, Milosevic would have conquered and annexed Kosovo, Bosnia and Croatia. And there would have been a greater Serbia built on the, on the mass graves of other populations. And All of them were against the intervention. I thought, well, now this is not a difference of emphasis. And has that, did they regret that? Have and the United States, furthermore, had to be talked into it. I mean, the Clinton administration didn't want to do it. The Blair administration was fortunately elected halfway through. The Tories had been terrible under John Major about Serbia. They'd been effectively pro-Serb. The Labour Party was much better. Blair had to sort of almost push Clinton into it. Well, we know, not almost. He really had to apply pressure. But it did work. Now, the United States had no real interest in the region. There was no oil in that we know about in the Balkans. The state interests of, you know, the U.S. Aren't, or economic interests aren't really involved at all. It was just a question of saying we can't really have ethnic cleansing and fascism in Europe. And we're OK, we're willing, to, we're willing to lend our armed forces to that enterprise. Very noble thing to have done totally under underappreciated and opposed in such a way as that as that the ghastly other outcome would have been the likelier one and the left largely quiet christopher Hitchens is my guest two more segments don't go anywhere except to perhaps order hitch 22 it's amazon.com or link to qhewitt.com i'll be right back Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. 44 minutes after the hour. Two segments left with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, before we go to Iraq, Christopher Hitchens, there are two places in Hitch 22 where you write about remembering a face. After you'd been mugged, you said, I could unhesitatingly shot him dead, and you could recall his face through the glass. And then, then in Beirut, many years later, when the Hezbollah thugs or the pro-Assad thugs are, are it was like seeing the enraptured gaze of the torturer staring down the gun barrel of a twisted psychopath. Do you think all psychopaths kind of look the same? No, no. unfortunately, they don't. Um, just before we answer that, I, you, you, we, we, before the break, we're criticizing the general abstentionism of the best of the left yes. over Bosnia. There were some very good exceptions to that, I have to say. The best of whom was um, Susan Sontag. Oh, yes, you mentioned her quite there, extensively. There, many others. There, was, there was a left in Europe and in the United States that decided that we couldn't stand by and have the third genocide of the 20th century take place on our watch. But the majority of what became the anti-war movement um, took the opposite view, that we should stay out of it. And we, we were to see those faces and those names and organizations again later on with Iraq. Yeah. No, psychos don't look the same. I wish they did. I mean, sometimes, you, that's not to say you can't tell a psycho, but the little guy who grabbed me, wiry little thug, in, in Beirut, he was a member of the Syrian National Socialist Party, you know, speed dialing for backup from others. He had a very feral uh, look on his face, but he also just looked like a punk at first. Uh, okay, so better varieties of evil. I want to get to Iraq. Last week I had Peter Beinart on talking about his new book, The Icarus Syndrome. And in that, you're identified as one of the left hawks who's unrepentant about your left hawkism. And in fact, I told him he had to go read Hitch 22, which he had not yet read, because of your argument about Iraq and your argument about why it was necessary and why, in retrospect, it remains necessary still. Yeah. But, but tell the audience, are there any other people left who came from the left to do as you did, stand on the side of the invasion of Iraq, who are still there? Or are they all run away? 
No, I don't think they've all run away. I mean, there was quite a creditable book produced of people making an anthology. I, I don't, just don't have its name in my head just right now, but of people from various parts of Europe and the rest of the world, and, and America too, saying that, that we have to finish with the Saddam Hussein regime. There's no alternative. Um, but the fact has to be faced. It, th this is considered to be an almost bizarrely eccentric position now. Even though, you know, Iraq now has elections, has a constitution. A free press. Has a free press. It has bad political parties behaving in selfish ways. It has a wonderfully functioning autonomous zone in the northeast of the country for its Kurdish minority, the first time in their history they've ever had anywhere to call their own. These people were being turned into refuse and raw material for mass graves within very recent memory. None, none of this is credited. Uh, furthermore, not a small thing, by the way, we can actually certify Iraq as having been properly inspected and disarmed, which we couldn't before unless we took the word of Saddam Hussein. That's not a small thing. And it's had a good knock-on effect on politics in Iran next door and in Lebanon and elsewhere, too. The fall of Saddam Hussein was generally very positively experienced. I think it will be remembered as a great thing to have done. But unfortunately, over, the overlay of incompetence and mismanagement and bungling that followed the liberation is never going to be forgiven or forgotten. And by the way, I don't think it should be. Do you believe on weapons of mass destruction that we know the story completely or that we ever will? Um, I, think there's, I think there's more to be found. And more people who haven't testified yet. Um, but I think we know enough to say from books like uh, the, the, the memoir of Saddam's chief nuclear scientist, Dr. Mahdi Obedi, the book famously called The Bomb in My Garden, and others, that there was only one presumption on which to operate in any sentence that contained the words weapons of mass destruction and Saddam Hussein. And that was on the presumption of guilt. It, has, it, had, he, it had to be assumed. It would be very unwise to assume that he wasn't either harboring the means of reconstituting or keeping some of the sinews of WMD, even if he'd been substantially degraded. And then, of course, if he'd been substantially degraded, I argued then and I argue now, that's the time to hit him. And so don't we have the same... Really, when he doesn't really have... If there's a window of impotence, take that now because you won't have another chance. Are we in the same window? You know, we wish we had one of those with the North Koreans. Right? I was just yeah. going to ask you, don't you think we're in the same window vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic Republic of Iran right now? Yes, I do. Do you think we ought to act in the same way we did vis-a-vis -vis Iraq? Did you see Jeff Goldberg's interview with the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates? No, I haven't. Well, you should see what that guy says. And we know he speaks for a huge number of Sunni Arab regimes in the Gulf. He said, stop them now. Stop them while you can. The Iranians. He said, it's all, we, we live... Wake, sleep, eat, breathe, nothing but the Iranian threat. No, you, one's safe, no one's safe if this regime, if this illegal, torturing, fascistic theocracy, if, if, if this is allowed while we're watching to become a nuclear state, we'll never forgive ourselves, and nor will anyone in the region. Of, we'll be cursed for generations if we're that lucky, if we live that long. And, and do you believe there's a prayer that the Obama administration will act, either alone or in concert with Israel, to do that? I'm not sure prayer is the word. Hope? Let's say that they're, 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 giving the, they're giving the strategy of exhausting, publicly and obviously exhausting all other options, a very, very, very leisurely try. I mean, they're, they're letting a lot of the clock run out, trying every, everything else. The logical end of that, 
has to be the announcement. Well, we have tried everything else, and it didn't work. They carried on cheating. They carried on laughing at us. They carried on flaunting the possibility. They, they, their, their cadet party in Lebanon now has a nuclear weapon as its party symbol, etc. How are we going to look back on this and say we weren't warned? I've got so much to ask, but with so little time, I've tasked you. So I'm just going to ask you about Obama. Uh, has he disappointed you greatly a little bit or not at all? Quite a bit. He just seems to believe it was the same watching him with Netanyahu this week, as if all this can be resolved, you know, man to man. These are just misunderstandings that can be ironed out by people of goodwill. He doesn't seem to have the concept of radical conflicts of interest at all. And, and, and so you, you expect him to fail in a re-election campaign? I don't know how I'd make myself a strong case for his being re-elected. All right. Last segment coming up with Christopher Hitchens. The memoir Hitch 22 is linked to HughHewitt.com. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the Hour America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, first of all, uh, Hitchens, thank you so much for doing this. I owe you dinner when I'm next in Washington, D.C., and I hope you'll let me uh, take you out on that. And, and the audience would love to know, what are you going to work on next during your treatment, and, and how are you going to you know, conduct yourself in the course of uh, a long sort of chemotherapy? Well, I'm just hoping I won't be as exhausted in the next phase as I am now. Um, it's been very nice talking to you. I hope, hope I haven't sounded too weary. But and, and by the way, it's been less of an effort than I feared. But it's quite an effort now, even for me to read anything very demanding. So I'm going to have to husband what I've got for a bit, and not perhaps not make any any too grand claims about what I intend to do. Are you are you happy with the reception of Hitch Twenty Two? Because now you don't get to promote it as aggressively as I'm sure you would have been able to do on the lecture circuit. I was a bit depressed by some of the some of the reviews because everyone's so much in love with this idea of I suppose it's a, it's a script that writes itself. Oh, here's a chap who used to be quite left wing and then he saw the error of his ways and became right wing and so on. And I, what I would hope that the book shows is that it, I have tried at least to be um, to some degree intellectually and morally consistent in the positions I've taken, and that it isn't as simple as the switch of allegiance or. And so forth. You'd, you'd be a better judge of what Oh, it's I, the anti-totalitarian. I think it's completely consistent. That, I, just, I just think it's going to present challenges to the American reader who need to meet those challenges because we don't read the way you have read. And, and that's what you, you made me work, and I'm glad you made me work. I just I, I, I knew you could sell it if you were out there doing that, but I, I wonder if the press is going to give you the chance to sell it now. It's, I do find it's better doing it one-on-one. It's, it's much better to engage with people. We're well, not one-on-one, but I mean, if I'm in a bookstore or a lecture hall and talking to people afterwards when, when I can sign books and hang around. Um, yeah, then people will say, well, should I read this book? It's very encouraging. Uh, it, There's an enormous amount of, of inquisitiveness and curiosity out there. People, I think, are aware of the fact that if they just rely on the everyday media for information or for depth or instruction, they're not going to get it. Have you ever written about the citizenship process and your Jefferson Memorial citizenship ceremony before? 
No, I saved it for the book. It's really remarkable. And Michael Chertoff did you a great favor, but you did it. You repaid it in kind by the loving detail with which you wrote about that. Uh, hats off on that. Uh, it was a great moment in my life to, uh, to go to the Jefferson Memorial that day. It really was. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. Christopher Hitchens, thank you so much. Feel better. I look forward to seeing you soon in Washington, D.C. Take it easy. Thanks so much for having me back. Thank you. And, America, once again, the book is Hitch 22. It is linked at HughHewitt.com. And um, I strongly, strongly recommend you buy it and enjoy it. Uh, I barely scratched the surface of it. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dwayne, for setting it up and making it happen. And thanks, all of you, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.